This is All the Cool Parts number 27 for Sunday, June 12th, 2011. Welcome to episode 27 of All the Cool Parts. I'm your host, Anthony Joseph Landman. This week on All the Cool Parts, the Now Ensemble. So on today's podcast, we're going to hear a great young up-and-coming group uh, based in New York City, and uh, they're part of a new generation of classical musicians and classical composers uh, that are putting together these groups, chamber groups, that are really open to anything and will play for anyone, anywhere, uh, you know, with no airs. And uh, really kind of similar to what I'm doing with this show. They're kind of trying to spread this music around, um, introduce people that may have never heard classical music before, and, uh, you know, let, let everybody know that this is, uh, this is really cool music that you should check out. Um, <clears throat> today on the show, I have three of the members of the Now Ensemble, Judd Greenstein, uh, Patrick Burke, and Mark Danzigers, and um, two of those, Judd and Patrick, um, are composers. They're composers in the group, but still an integral part of the group. Mark is also a composer, and he's also the electric guitarist for the group. And uh, the other uh, members are Alex Sop on the flute, Sarah Budd on the clarinet, Michael Mizrahi on piano and Logan Cole on the double bass. Uh, I just wanted to read you guys this little bit uh, from their bio. It says, Today, Now Ensemble is well known as one of the brightest stars on the new music scene in New York City. 
We've performed on some of New York's most prestigious stages, from concert venues to big-name festivals to clubs and bars and art galleries. Critics and audiences have taken notice, selling out our shows and filling our halls with enthusiastic fans, many of whom are being introduced to new music or even classical music for the first time. So, yeah, I mean, uh, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have uh, these guys on the show and present the CD to you. Uh, really, what uh, introduced me to this group was one of the members, Patrick Burke, posted the video, or I don't know what to call it, music video or short film, um, that was made to Judd Greenstein's piece, Change, which opens the CD. And I watched that video, and just based on that alone, I was like, I got to have these guys on. So um, why don't we just go ahead and uh, get on with our interview with Judd Greenstein, Patrick Burke, and Mark Danzigers of the Now Ensemble. Okay, everybody, I am here with three members of the Now Ensemble, uh, Judd Greenstein, Patrick Burke, and Mark Danzigers. And uh, yeah, welcome to the show, guys. Just get, just go ahead, talk over each other. Hey, thanks. All right. Glad to be here. Thanks a lot. Nice thanks. to see you. All right. So this is uh, exciting because it's uh, the first podcast I've done um, with multiple people uh, rather than just one guest. And um, yeah, let's uh, welcome to the show, guys. Let's talk about um, the Now Ensemble first. And uh, I just wanted to ask you guys, um, you know, how did you find each other? How did you find this group of people? And, uh, yeah, how did you all come together? There was well, this beacon of light in the sky, and we all kind of moved towards it. And uh, <laughs> we met in a field of corn and uh, started playing music. It was pretty great. Really? In you Midwest. met in Indiana? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we all met at uh, the Yale School of Music where we were all um, – studying music composition at I think slightly staggered times um but anyway we we there was there was some overlap there and so um uh Judd and Patrick originally I think uh started putting on concerts um using musicians who we knew um some people from the Yale School of Music um and others and um eventually those concerts sort of coalesced into um, not only the music of Patrick and Judd, but of, of other composers, and um, uh, the group solidified as its its current instrumentation, which is flute, clarinet, uh, piano, electric guitar, and bass. Okay. And uh, Mark, go ahead, Patrick. Uh, no, I was just agreeing. Um, no, go ahead. Mark. Yeah. Go, yeah, the way Skype works is whenever you utter something, you know, you light up, so... Um, yeah, um, so, uh, Mark, you're the guitarist of the group and also yes. a composer and, mm -hmm. um, Judd and Patrick, you both, uh, compose for the group, right? That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, can you tell us a little bit about, um, the other members just briefly? Well, I think the, the only thing I'd add to Mark's description of the origin was that 
it's true, you know, we were, we were putting on concerts and it was sort of a composer-led thing in part, but really it evolved into something where, you know, we were all, um, we all had mutual interests, um, both as performers and composers, in working um, with people from the other side. And it really did feel like the other side when we were in grad school because, you know, you'd have your little community of composers who were studying with each other yeah, right. and we all met together and, and had like colloquia and things like that. And then you had the performers who didn't really have any way of interacting with composers except that every once in a while they'd be given some, you know, problematic score and told you have to learn this in two weeks and then come on this concert and, you know, do your dancing monkey routine and, and play for us. And there were a bunch of performers who were like, I want to be engaged with new music, but not in that way. And there were a bunch of composers who said, I don't want to just treat, you know, performers as chattel objects to uh, to serve our pleasure. And so <laughs> we kind of all got together and said, why don't we actually form a, an ensemble? And and then eventually coalesced, like Mark saying, into the uh, the chamber group that, that it became and that it is today. Right. And if I could add, you know, just leading into your next question, Anthony, um, about the other performers, I think it was for us, it was very, um, you know, it, it, it depended the instrumentation of the group was it was about the instrumentation, of course, but it was also about just the personalities, the specific people that we wanted in the group, you know, because it's just for us, chemistry is just um, a huge, extremely important thing. So that's how we kind of ended up with everybody. Um, as Mark said, it was sort of mixed. It kept changing for the first two years. But by 2004, we were settled on our, um, our instrumentation and our, our players. Um, there was only, there's only been one change since then, which is our, our bass player, our original bass player, um, left the group and then we brought on Logan. So does anybody else want to continue just talking about the other players or... Sure. Uh, so we have in the group um, uh, Sarah Buddy. Uh, she's our clarinetist. She is fantastic, um, sort of new music uh, on the scene clarinetist, and just in general, um, a really awesome and enthusiastic player. Um, we have Alex Sop is our flutist. Um, she also plays in a number of new music groups and non-new music groups around New York. Um, Logan Cole is our bass player, uh, originally from Portland, and joined the group, as Patrick was just saying, in, I think, 08. Um, okay. And um, uh, then Michael Mizrahi uh, is our fantastic pianist, um, who we also uh, knew from the Yale School of Music, and he now is on the faculty at uh, Lawrence Conservatory in Wisconsin. Yeah, that's great. Um, and all these players... Um, Man, just fantastic players. Um, really, really great. And, uh, you know, as far as what Judd was saying about um, creating this bridge between the composers and the performers in the school, mm -hmm. uh, when you guys were there, I mean, that's that's a really awesome thing that you guys did. I know, um, f you know, I had similar experiences in school, you know, where I talked to performers and ask them if they were playing new music. And they said, sure, I played Leonard Bernstein once. You right, know, right. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a, a really great thing. Um, and uh, let's just get on to the music, unless there's anything else you guys want to say about the group in general. Mm. 
That's cool. That's yeah. great. Yeah. That's so great. Let, let's yeah. just. I'm just gonna basically um, go in CD order here and have. Uh, I think nine excerpts um, that I sent you guys, and we're gonna start with Judd's piece, uh, change, and um, a couple things. Uh, this piece. Uh, I want to talk about the video, but uh, first, I don't know, Judd, can you just tell us about this piece, you know, how um, the inception of this piece and just a little bit about it? Sure. Um, You know, a lot of my pieces have to do with um, overlap, overlapping uh, sort of small motives that wind up creating a larger rhythmic grid with different pulses at different places. And um, I thought in this piece, I wanted to be a little bit more transparent in terms of how something like that is constructed and to make the piece in some way about process, but not in the sort of 1960s, 1970s sense um, where the piece is about watching a static process that unfolds over time. And and once you um, sort of get what the process is, you're in a way part of the the conversation. This isn't that static. It's more um, deliberately paced and there's more starts and stops in the way that the different elements come together. Um, But at the same time, I think it's really clear and audible um, when things are changing. Um, And in a way that was part of the point is that um, the piece becomes about, uh, it becomes a reflection on the concept of change because I'm inviting a listener in to hear how, um, how change happens in my mind, how, how I make a decision about when things uh, should change. You know, I mean, I get asked a lot um, when I'm in certain contexts, like, you know, at Tanglewood or something like that, like how I feel about repetition in music. I mean, I remember that was a question I was actually asked on a panel discussion and it's happened more than one time. And it, it seems like such a strange question to me because for me, you know, repetition is like a building block. It's like asking how you feel about you know, volume or, you know, pulse or (laughs) like, uh, timbre, you know, it's like, it's not really on the table as something that wouldn't happen. Um, but what repetition does, it it keeps something in play. And and the exception I find to, uh, to those moments of repetition are really the the ones where, um, where you've honed in on something and and that becomes the thing that's almost elevated in, in the context of a, of a work. And so, um, I wanted to be really deliberate about um, about using repetition in such a way that uh, listeners could be drawn into the material, but then also obviously not become bored by it. And in a way, that's always the the challenge of writing music in this kind of style. Um, the only difference in this piece, I think, is that I was really thinking about that consciously as something that I wanted listeners to do, as opposed to having it merely be something that was part of my process from the from the start internally. Right, right, and. Um... We uh, this excerpt that we're going to listen to is is from uh, the first part of the piece. We heard the very beginning of the piece in the intro to the show, and so this piece starts out with your your motive, right? This um, flute solo that's the uh, this series of ascending uh, perfect fifths, right? Um, mm-hmm. This is your like kernel motive, um, and this excerpt sort of starts with this. Um, uh, I have no other way of saying it, but this sort of jazzy piano solo. Um, 
and then uh, a flute comes in uh, with a little bit of guitar. And then um, it's kind of cool because, you know, you can hear when this original motive, you can really hear it. You know, when it comes in, this the bass comes in, you know, with this original motive in the flute, um, a different pitch level. But, um, yeah, you can really hear it, just like you said. Um, yeah. So, yeah, anything else you guys, uh, Mark or Patrick, want to say about this um, excerpt before we play it? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I think playing the piece is a really, uh, enjoyable process. It just has a great energy and a great vibe. And I think, um, what Judd has hit upon, um, in, in this piece is the fact that when you do set up this environment where you have, um, some kind of, uh, repeating motive and a cell or pulse that builds, um, then every new thing that gets added to the texture or every new smaller cell that gets added to the original cell or just every new moment that that deviates just a little bit from what you've just heard um, has a certain kind of energy and excitement to it. Um, and I think he's, he's really captured that uh, nicely and it's something that makes it fun to play because while, while we are playing um, music that sort of rotates around on itself in this sort of circular way, um, sometimes the circle gets a little bit bigger. Sometimes it's a little bit smaller. Um, and so there's a certain character associated with those changes. Um, and uh, the, I think that's part of what, what makes the energy of the piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and don't forget, this piece groups. That's like a really important... Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's It's so fun to listen to. I mean, I think that's kind of... Um, for me, that's such a big part, you know, the visceral aspect of it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, one of my favorite moments of, from this particular <clears throat> excerpt is from the second section. There's a just a great um, part uh, where these uh, some fantastic interplay with the electric guitar and some of the other instruments, and yeah, it just it grooves and it rocks, and um, yeah, let's just check it out. The first excerpt uh, from "Change" by Judd Greenstein. Thank you. 
I, you know, I think it's interesting, like, this isn't something that I talk about in any program note or anywhere, but the, the piano part there for me is like clearly a reference, um, to the kind of sound that you hear in, um, Detroit techno and maybe some Chicago house from like the eighties and nineties. Um, but you know, it's not meant to be like a reference to that. It's just something that, um, happens internally. And I expect that very few people who actually hear it are familiar with that music in the first place. And then secondly, like, even if they are, it's so dissociated because, you know, it's not electronic, it's a chamber music ensemble. Um, but it's something that is also like very strange to try to do in a live performance context because, um, it's, uh, it originally was just a sequenced, you know, like MIDI or, or whatever command where you could have this real precision of the piano, you know, doing these seemingly impossibly precise gestures. And then Michael comes in, our pianist and does it. Um, and that, you know, the point is like, you're not taking that thing and wanting to use it as itself. It's not like a quote, it's not quoting some other music. It's taking something that I think is just fantastic from, you know, the world of music that I've heard and seeing what happens when you introduce it into a foreign context, um, not as like a weird, you know, exchange student, but as something that's actually going to be chewed up and digested and then, you know, reconfigured and repurposed in this context. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, that was one thing I, I wrote down in my notes here um, is that there's, you know, so many audible influences in here, but they're all integrated. And so it doesn't, you know, it doesn't sound like, OK, here's the, the jazz and then, OK, here later, this is the the uh, techno coming out or this is the rock, whatever. It's so integrated into the piece that it's all. Uh, you know, one whole unto itself, but you can still hear these influences <clears throat> woven into the fabric, you know? Um, so there's obviously the, just the classical music influence, you know, there's jazz, there's rock, there's hip hop, there's um, the dance. You were talking about the dance music. Um, and uh, I wanted to ask you guys <clears throat> another question, you know, um, because groups um, that are cropping up, uh, around New York City like like you guys. Um, I wanted to ask you how big of an influence like Steve Reich's music had on you because I can, I can almost see this sort of like, you know, Steve Reich standing in the background with this sort of smile on his face like a so, like the sort of proud papa. You know what I mean? Um, and I'm not saying this music is, you know, like his or whatever, but it does have that sense of like, uh, you know, that lineage. I don't know. What do you guys think of that? Well, uh, I mean, I, I, I think, I mean, I can't sort of speak for everyone, but I, I think that, um, certainly, um, I, you know, hearing Steve Reich's music in college, uh, for me was a huge sort of epiphany and revelation that we could have modern music that had a tonal center and a pulse. Um, mm -hmm. And that was sort of a, a big deal, um, uh, especially if, you know, you're sort of being steeped in, um, in some of the other music from the 20th century. It's, it sort of comes as quite a shock. Um, and um, 
I, I think there are a lot of things from Reich's music that are really, really attractive. I mean, besides the tonal center, besides the sense of pulse, you have these um, uh, timbral layers and <clears throat> interlocking rhythms and all these things. And, you know, those those qualities aren't exclusive um, to the music of Steve Reich by any means. But what what Steve Reich did was he brought those into the art music discourse or actually i guess i should say he brought those kind of back into the the art music discourse and yeah. so that's you know that i think that you know for him to be a trailblazer in that regard um in in this field of of classical music i mean is is obviously a huge uh event and you know definitely had an impact on on me yeah for me um he was a huge a huge influence as well um as is probably apparent in my music, especially in on the previous album. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think for me, it was, um, I was also interested in bringing different styles together when I was in grad school. So for me, I mean, I really deliberately tried to integrate that kind of minimalist process a la Steve Rice with, you know, uh, various other influences. I was into Alfred Schnitka a lot at the time. I still am, but not quite as much. And um, so, yeah, for me, it was deliberate. Um, however, like, I, you know, I'm also influenced by Gamelan a lot um, mm-hmm. and just other other types of world music. But ironically, I actually got into those first before I uh, before I really embraced, you know, minimalism and and Steve Reich. So in a weird way, that was like different types of world music led me to, to minimal, you know, to minimalism. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, uh, yeah, I just wanted to get you guys, um, I don't know, thought on that, but, uh, this, um, excerpt number two from, um, Judd Greenstein's change, uh, this, particular uh, well before we do this I, I don't want to forget this I do not want to forget to talk about this um, the video let's just let's just talk about the video for a minute um, you know I the first uh, thing that I heard from this album was watching the video Patrick you uh, linked this video on Facebook and I watched it and uh, man I was blown away by this video it was um uh, you know, I've seen people do classical music videos before, but this is by far the best one I've ever seen. Um, who did this? Like, how did this video come about? Well, um, my friend Josh Frankel is the, the filmmaker here. And, you know, we kind of have this weird, <laughs> everybody's not sure exactly what to call it. Is it a, is it a film, you know, with, music a film to music is it a music video an extended music video i mean it's definitely not something where we were like hey we should make a music video and then you know josh was like sure i'll do that and then came up with this idea josh and i went to college together and are you know by now old friends and um we actually worked together on a film he did uh, a few years ago a, a shorter film about bicycle messengers in new york and i wrote some of the music for that um that was actually much more hip-hop uh music and then i he used folk music, which is one of my other pieces for Now Ensemble, in a video that he did um, for a campaign, actually. 
And so, you know, we'd really been building towards trying to do something together. And when I started writing the piece Change, I actually wrote the opening, you know, six or seven minutes first. And, I, you know, he was talking about uh, maybe having me write something where he could make this movie. And, you know, he was talking about um, the ideas and some of the themes and architecture and space. And, and we, what happened was we basically started interweaving ideas from the other into the construction of our our own works um and so you know he heard this opening part and was like that would be really great and that kind of influenced the pacing and the way that he was thinking about um movement in his work and then he started showing me pictures from his trip to shanghai um and some of the models that he was using for constructing the film and and the influences that he was going to be sort of borrowing from and i was like this is very interesting and and i thought about where the piece could go and so they you know it's almost like a an ecosystem where um, you know, a plant and a, an animal create a mutually beneficial, you know, symbiotic relationship and they grow and evolve together, um, to use really crude ecological terms. <laughs> uh, you know, and that, that's how this piece came about. I mean, I didn't, I, I didn't have anything to do with the plot of his movie and he didn't have anything to do with, you know, the notes of my piece. But in terms of the structure and the way we were thinking the, the, the work would kind of go in the biggest sense, um, they were joined at the hip. Um, and so, you know, I don't think that the piece is meant to be with his movie alone. You know, it's not like a soundtrack, certainly, and it's not like it can only exist or that the imagery that he chose is the only imagery that I would imagine someone would have when they think about the movie, uh, about the piece. But it's absolutely, you know, from my perspective, like some of the most stunning visual work that I've ever seen, frankly. And uh, it's just a real honor to be able to work with somebody who's doing that and is a, is a close friend. Um, but actually, you know, maybe Patrick and Mark can talk a little bit about the, the process of shooting it because that was kind of amazing also. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, guys. Yeah. I, yeah, I was, um, I was thrilled about it. It was so fun. I mean, um, we spent, basically we spent a few days in a studio with, um, a green screen, or I should say the entire room was, was green, um, a fairly sizable room. So, the process was that uh, Joshua or Josh uh, shot, you know, all of us sometimes in small groups or or whatever, or sometimes separately um, in front of the green screen, and it was just so much fun. You know, we, we it was a completely full production. There was stylists there. There was a choreographer for all the dancing. Uh, you know, just there were more people working on the film than there were in our ensemble. So it wow. was just. It was fantastic. It was just like one of the best experiences. And I, um, you know, and of course I grew very close to the fish. <laughs> if you haven't seen the video, then maybe we'll just do yeah, that, that for you to check out. nonsensical if you haven't seen the video. Right, right. <laughs> right, right. But Mark, do you have anything? Well, um, <clears throat> I mean, I, I think that... Um, it, I mean, we all just had a really good time uh, doing doing our kind of acting debut um, and, um, you know, playing along to the recording while executing, uh, you know, various movements um, uh, like dance moves or having to even just stand up and pretend to walk out of a subway train or having to pretend that there's a huge amount of turbulence going on in the water tower in which you're sitting uh because it's currently leaving the atmosphere all this all this sort of stuff it was, it was sort of good um challenges yeah so you had to do the whole 
Enterprise getting hit by the photon torpedo thing. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, exactly. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, you know, and like Judd said, and uh, people should realize this is no, you know, three and a half minute music video. This is uh, it really is a short film. Um, and uh, I'll have a link to this, um, of course, in the show notes. And I encourage, um, strongly encourage all of you listeners to watch this because it's, uh, it's really awesome. So, um, yeah, really check it out. So, um, this excerpt number two, let's go into this one, um, from, uh, Judd Greenstein's change. This, uh, it opens into a little more of introspective music, almost like we get like a little reprieve from, you know, the incessant beat um and uh it's almost you know it has this uh really really beautiful section for bass almost like using it like a cello but a very lyrical beautiful bass uh in a trio with the two winds um is how this uh section starts and um yeah Any, anything else you guys want to say before i play this excerpt Bass solo. <laughs> <laughs> I've always said it's just one of the most beautiful bass passages that I've heard. And I mean, both the writing and also Logan. I mean, it's just amazing. Like you said, it's just he makes it sound like a cello, which is so extremely hard to do. Yeah. In that range. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's check it out. The second excerpt from Judd Greenstein's Change. <clears throat>
Cool. Yeah, I mean, one thing is, as you can hear, like, this, writing this kind of music would be totally impossible if, you know, we didn't have the kind of players that we do in the group. And, and I don't really, at this point, um, generally write music without thinking very deeply about the people for whom I'm writing. And with Now Ensemble, it's just an extension of my mind. I mean, I know these instrumentalists so well um, that it really allows me, and I know Patrick and Mark feel the same way, um, allows me to just take chances and, and explore uh, possibilities that I wouldn't do otherwise. And, you know, that really ranges from um, being able to give, you know, Logan a passage like that and know that he's going to bring such musicality to it in a difficult register. Um, and also, you know, Alex and, and Sarah, too. I mean, you know, having them be able to play as beautiful classical musicians and then juxtapose that with this really, like, tight pocket that makes that, you know, groove at the end actually work. Um, there aren't too many groups that I work with that can traverse that type of shift and actually do it in a way where everyone understands what's happening and, and feels internally the, the kind of message that's being sent by that juxtaposition, where it's not just something that's happening on the page, but it's happening in the body. Um, and, and, you know, it becomes five musicians who are playing as one instrument. Um, which is really what chamber music is, but it's it's almost impossible to bring uh, that range of possibility into a chamber ensemble um, in most contexts, and that's part of what makes it so great to work with this group of musicians. Yeah, absolutely, I'm sure. Um, and uh, one other thing, just uh, before we go on to the next one uh, that I wanted to mention, that uh, I really enjoyed hearing uh, from the end of this piece was this strummed guitar. So this is something that you don't really hear very often, you know, in classical music, but it's obviously something that, you know, one of the most natural things to do on the instrument. Yeah. yeah. I think, I think Judd went ahead and even marked this all in downstrokes, um, which is, it's unusual to, to get even that, you know, not extreme level of detail in a part. Um, but I think, I think Judd had a really clear idea that he wanted something that was going to be, um, really rhythmic and propulsive, you know? Um, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's, um, the, the only trick with something like that is, is to not make such a huge sound that you kind of drown everybody out. Right. Um, uh, and so, you know, that, that kind of thing ends up impacting, you know, my choice of pickups and, and, and all this sort of stuff. Um, and just trying to get some sort of blend with the piano, uh, who I'm really interlocking with there. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's actually really fun to play. I mean, I, I don't know if, if, if non-guitar players, um, feel that way when they get a, uh, you know, a like 40 bar passage of quarter notes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> no, but I mean, you know, it's as a guitarist, it, that's, that's sort of what, that's what, what music is. Uh, so it's, well, it's yeah. a very idiomatic thing. Y- yeah, exactly. Idiomatic. I mean, um, I think, um, and a lot of players, if they got stuck with, you know, 40 measures of just quarter notes, they'd be kind of bored or, Oh my God. But you know, with with a guitarist and you're just strumming away, you know, all down strokes. It's a perfectly cool, just rock out. You know, you get to go all Pete Townsend on it or whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. 
It's a good um, chance to smile and nod at everybody. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or um, set something on fire. Yeah. <laughs> or kick something or break something. Or, yeah. <laughs> right. right. Um, okay, so let's go on to uh, Sean Fryer's Velvet Hammer. And um, Sean obviously is not here, so I don't know. Would one of you like to tell us a little bit about I wouldn't Sean? mind. Ju- yeah, I wouldn't mind jumping in just because uh, uh, from – from the perspective of a player, this was just a very, very, very interesting score. Um, and I'm not sure if, if um, all of Sean's music is, is, is like this. I think it, it often is, but he puts, um, he puts a very high level of detail in, um, in his score. And so I think pretty much the first time we played through this piece, um, it, it didn't sound perfect because there's, there's certainly a lot of, a lot of, um, parts that are that are sort of technically um, demanding on the instruments, but what he had he had figured out well in advance was exactly what kind of timbre he wanted to get from the ensemble at every moment, and that worked right away the first time. I mean, usually the ensemble, um, uh, and this is something that we enjoyed to do. Um, we we take a long time to hone in on a timbre for a piece um, and to try and find a sound and get the blend right at certain moments, you know, whether it's between the winds or, or, or other combinations of instruments. Here was the case where everything was mapped out 100% in the score. Um, and not only that, but the timbres that he was actually after were very, very interesting. I mean, I think that he has a strong sense of a kind of reverb effect um, <clears throat> between various instruments. Uh, so you'll have you'll have a, a piano articulation and a guitar articulation at, at a given moment, and then a, a kind of a clarinet swelling from nothing maybe behind that, you know, to give a kind of a, a clarinet halo emanating from a guitar and a piano articulation. Mm-hmm. Lots of that kind of stuff, um, and it's all it's all very sort of thoroughly thought out. And so that I think, as as the ensemble, um, uh, you know, as, for for us as as performers, that was something that was very attractive about the piece um, right away. Was that he has this very 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 particular sense of sound worlds that develop throughout this piece. Yeah, and it's centered around the guitar, right, Mark? The the guitar is actually—I mean, yeah—he he 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 wants the guitar really, really loud um, in live performance. I mean, there, there's times when um, I'm supposed to do the thing that I, at all other times, avoid, which is sort of drown out the ensemble. Um, in the recording, you know, we we sort of balance that out with the fact that, well, yeah, that would be cool, but also uh, the flute's doing something really, really cool there, and we all want to hear that. Um, but um uh yeah i mean the guitar part has you know has there's there's a couple of delay settings on there there's some sections with slide that go i have to you know play some notes that are actually off the fretboard it's like a high f sharp um there's um uh what else there's there's a couple of different distortion effects um not, nothing nothing too crazy in in the effects world but all kind of utilized with a very specific goal in mind um, right, and he kind of has uh well, correct me if I'm wrong, but he kind of has the other instruments sort of playing off of these sonic 
you know, the, the sonic palette that's generated by the guitar and the effects, right? I think that that is a part. That's definitely a strong part of the sound world mm-hmm. in the piece. Is, is the other instruments are kind of imitating guitar or sort of pulsing off of of guitar attack or some variation of of that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's um, even with all this stuff going on, all this sound coloring and um, and shading, there's still this pulse to the piece too, right? This groove, this pulse, even if it's just in the bass sometimes, but right. um, still, you know, common to uh, to this music that you guys are playing. Uh, so why don't we just check out the, the very first excerpt from Sean Fryer's Velvet Hammer, and then um, we'll come back and talk about it a little bit more and listen to the second excerpt. So we just heard the first excerpt from Sean Fryer's Velvet Hammer, and uh, we're going to go into the second excerpt here. Um, one of the cool things from this excerpt um, towards the end, um, well, kind of kind of from the middle, but um, towards the end, are these really great sounding, um, very quick glissandos in the guitar that start you know way high in the in the guitar's register. And just sort of plunge down, you know, really quickly. Um, I don't know. It's a really cool sound. It, it generates a really cool color and motion. And I don't know. Yeah, he's he, he's really um, he's just very precise with his with his sound world and with the the gestures that he wants. Um, and the way that those develop over time, I think, uh, is also something that that sort of attractive in the piece and 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 there you know he's he's kind of i think part of 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 what happens in the piece is is um there's just this sustained level of timbral and gestural interest um so it it never feels like you always feel like you're a little bit on unsafe ground you know something something's always about to happen something is a little bit dangerous or unstable or unpredictable in the in the texture um and so yeah i mean it's 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 a it's a really fun fun piece to play for that reason yeah great um all right anything else um you guys want to say before i play this i just say sean is i mean he's just an expert expert craftsman um you know he really has such a clear vision of uh 
the sounds he wants to hear in all of his works, but he also has just a great control of form, and that's a pretty rare combination. Um, and you know, we're just really happy to be able to work with him. We just heard Sean Fryer's Velvet Hammer. We're going to move on to Missy Mazzoli and her piece, Magic with Everyday Objects. Um, who wants to talk about Missy? I guess I should. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, Missy is one of my closest friends, and uh, so you know, I can't really be objective here. But, um, you know, Missy is just such a phenomenal composer, and um, she was one of the first people that we wanted to work with. Um, you know, this piece is actually, I think, the oldest piece on the record. And, you know, it kind of came in just after we finished our first um, disc, which, you know, featured um, mostly composers from within the ensemble. Um, and I think it, it actually is a piece that I can say, because I've heard most of Missy's pieces since then, I think really points to a lot of the things that she has become known for in her music. Um, and is one of my favorite pieces that, that she's written. Um, you know, Missy works a lot with, uh, with triads that kind of, you know, rub up against each other in interesting ways and mm -hmm. create these, these sort of swells of tension. Um, but she also is, you know, she really knows how to write for instruments and she, she treats instruments individually with great care. So, you know, you have this kind of sense of a, a, a big, lush uh, texture, you know, that's kind of churning and moving in, in kind of hard-to-predict ways um, that are still repetitive in, in enough that they um, give you a feeling of um, kind of nostalgia as the piece is building for what's being lost uh, as, as they go on. But then, you know, you can also follow the individual instrumental lines that come out of it um, and this piece, you know, has these wonderful moments of piano solos, um, almost like the, you know, Velvet Hammer is built around the guitar. I would say this piece is built around the piano um, as sort of a core that's driving the sounds that are that are coming from the ensemble. Right. Yeah. And I, I think you're you're totally right. I mean, he her. This is actually the second show <clears throat> that we've had a piece of hers on. Um, the first one was um, 
when I interviewed David uh, Little and um, in their album. But anyway, um, but yeah, I can I can hear, you know, this um, same style in both pieces. And she has these sort of, I don't know, these melodies that kind of slink around. You know, you're not, you're not really quite sure where you are. Uh, you know, right when you, you think you get a hold, you sort of, you know, get this little, um, chromatic turn and I don't know, it's just, uh, kind of slinky and yeah, she, she has an interesting, I don't know. Right. Um, She, she has an interesting sense of phrase structure, I think. Um, and, and it's one of those things that actually makes this piece, um, a, a challenge, uh, because exactly what you're saying, it's, it's, Despite the fact that that um, there's there's often a pretty strong sense of pulse, um, because the phrase structure is so irregular and uneven and unpredictable, it's it's quite easy to kind of get lost in this kind of dream world that that the piece creates and and like forget you know where you are, mm-hmm. um, and and it's actually one of the that, that that's one of the things that 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 makes the piece a, a, it sort of adds a, a nice level of of uh, tension to the the performance. Yeah, awesome. Okay, well, let's just check this out. Um, excerpt from Missy Mazzoli's "Magic with Everyday Objects." <laughs> we're also doing another project with her actually this coming season um she is writing an opera with now ensemble as the orchestra and we've done sort of part of this on tour we've taken it you know down to the carolinas and um up to toronto and fredonia and other places um but it's going to have its premiere at the kitchen in new york city in february so we're really excited to keep working with missy this year and 
you know, hopefully we'll record that and maybe we'll be back on, on the show talking about that piece next year. Oh, that's, that sounds awesome. I mean, can you, can you divulge anything about the opera? Is that still kind of under wraps or? Oh no. I mean, it, it's, it's, it follows the, the life um, of this woman, Isabel Eberhardt and sets excerpts from her diary. She was a, uh, a woman whose family died in, in Europe, and she moved to Africa and sort of lived as a a man, actually, um, for, for safety, um, and had this just very, very strange but wonderful and, and tragically brief life. She actually died in a flash flood in the desert, um, and her wow. life is you know filled with those kinds of contradictions, but she writes beautifully about it um, in these diaries that she left behind, and Missy actually um, is teaming up with the filmmaker Steve Taylor, uh, who has taken um, footage from, you know, like sort of found old film stock that's decaying uh, in some ways. Not not so much like the Bill Morrison decasia stuff. It's not about the decay, but it, it, it's more about these images that are tied to, um, you know, imagining what her life might have looked like, but also the themes that she comes back to in her diaries and that the songs are built around. Um, are illuminated really beautifully in the films as well as in the music and the, the songs. Um, so it's just a very evocative, wonderful piece. And, and, you know, we're obviously looking forward to being a part of that next year. Oh, that sounds great. Well, yeah, um, I'll look forward to that definitely. And um, let's move on to Mark Danziger's Burst. So, um, you know, I, I want to ask you a question about this, but... Um, why don't you just tell us about the piece first? Sure. Uh, well, this is a this is a piece that I wrote um, with with a couple of different starting points. Uh, one of the starting points was that in my previous two pieces for Now Ensemble, which you can hear on on our first album, uh, the guitar has this really kind of minimal, pointillistic role. Um, and you know, right when I first started. You know, writing for this group, um, one of the one of the challenges, uh, not only for me but for for all the composers, was you know how do we integrate the guitar successfully into this into this world? You know, each of the instruments in Now Ensemble has such a different articulation sound, um, and so that issue was was really on my mind. Uh, but as I as I played with the group a bit more, um, I became more interested in uh, just integrating you know the way i play guitar um sort of outside this this um very thoughtful uh strict kind of classical context um and just bringing in a bit of that sort of idiomatic um guitar playing and guitar writing uh that you know that that i've been you know that that sort of relates to the way i've i've played guitar um you know for years and years now and so, so that was one of the starting points for Burst. So you, you'll hear this kind of pentatonic lick um, uh, accompanied by a sort of a chord progression. Um, uh, that sort of turns into one of the main themes of the piece. Um, uh, so that, that was one of, that was one of my, my thoughts um, when starting. Uh, and then the other thought was just sort of my, my usual, you know, I want to make nice, you know, nice melodies, um, and uh, and counterpoint, and so those those two interests sort of collided and and got superimposed on each other. Where you know it's sort of me writing the kinds of tunes that I like to like to uh, to write, 
um, and the kinds of tunes that um, just sort of, for me, are kind of catchy and get sort of stuck in my head and, and give me this kind of sense of lightness or, um, you know, there's a sense of playfulness, uh, maybe a little bit of nostalgia or, or some, something like that. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so any, anyway, it's, it, it's, it's sort of that idiomatic guitar writing world um, uh, m- mushed together with my kind of melodic sense. Right, and then the uh, the kind of rhythmic sense, you know, you have these sort of uh, circular rhythms going on in all the different instruments, uh, almost like a yeah. gamelan ensemble or African drumming. I don't know what it came from, but, um, yeah. you know, they're sort of creating these polyrhythms from their own rhythms that sort of keep circulating right yeah i mean often you know i i, I don't i don't always do this uh but but I, I like to kind of give each instrument uh a a um each instrumental part sort of has a logic um and it has its own sort of algorithm in a way i mean there, i certainly don't I, you know I, I don't work with mathematical algorithms um uh but um I in in a way I do sort of think of it that way. You know, what's this what's this instrument's job at this place? Well, it's sort of it's you know it's doing this kind of churning eighth note thing or or, or whatever. So yeah, that is that's that's sort of a way that I think about writing for instruments. Okay, and uh, the other question I had for you, you know, this this particular excerpt um, is sort of the last quarter of the piece or so, yeah. um, and uh, or maybe the last third. I don't know and um, the very end, is this a tapping? Oh yeah, it's not. Well, it's not really tapping. Um, uh, what it is actually is it's my right hand creating a bar uh, at the tenth fret. So oh man, you're going all Steve Vai on it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, <laughs> um, it, it's something that I wrote and then immediately regretted writing because it's 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 really hard to pull off. Well, but um, I think I, oh man, I don't think you should regret it. I think it sounds it sounds I think it sounds awesome. And, and, and oh, again, cool. it's one Thanks. of these it's one of these things that um, like the strumming in Judd's piece. Um, it's one of these things that you don't hear in this kind of music very often. But you know, <laughs> right. it's a legitimate guitar technique you know that that can be oh, used sure. and um i think it's used to great effect here uh, it's um you know you have this uh i'm just for lack of a better word sort of tapping section at the end yeah over this um kind of driving double bass pulse in this um short rising figure in the piano and, yeah, um, and and it's it's sort of about the way that that guitar figure interacts with the with the piano. I mean, they almost build. It's not like they're one instrument, but it's it's something like that where there's a bit of a blur between the two. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're both doing these kind of arpeggiated things, and they they sort of mix and mingle. Okay, so uh, let's check this out. Um, this excerpt from Mark Danziger's Burst. Thank you. 
We just heard Mark Danziger's burst, and we're going to move right on to David Crowell's Waiting in the Rain for Snow. Um, so, who wants to take David? Tell me a little bit about him. Uh, David is a composer and saxophonist. He's a really amazing saxophonist. He also plays um, with folk glass a lot. Um, he, you know, this is actually another fairly old piece uh, in terms of when we started playing it um and it's stuck in our repertoire because we we enjoy it and it you know it has this interesting um it, it has an interesting form i mean it's pretty straightforward but also it creates real challenges for listeners and for players because um he he sort of deconstructs this um driving line um and has these uh passages where you know different bits of it are being played in different instruments. Um, and so it creates this sense of perpetual motion. Um, but then, you know, in order for that perpetual motion feeling to happen, it requires real precision from the players. Um, and so it's a very challenging piece, but I think it gives it a wonderful energy underneath. Um, and then the piece kind of opens up in this more dry, you know, like sort of rock anthemic um, section, which I, seems to have somehow been a theme of this, album without meaning to there's a lot of opening up into a rock anthemic section <laughs> <laughs> the air i guess when we were uh we've been working with the composers the last few years um but you know i think actually in a, in a weird way this strikes me as one of the more mysterious pieces on the record for, for me in the sense that um you know the the sort of takeaway is not quite what i think the material suggests it's going to be um I, it's hard for me to explain why I feel that way. It's just the affect that I get when I listen to the piece. And I, I don't know if Mark and Patrick agree with me there. Well, well wait, what are you saying exactly? I'm just saying the, the vibe I get is kind of mysterious. Like, I I always feel there's yeah. a sort of strange sense that I get when the piece is finished. Because it's, you know, it feels like this kind of driving, rocking thing that you think is, like, kind of taking you to this very specific place. But it doesn't really do that. It actually ends up being more ambiguous than I think it suggests. 
Uh, yeah, I, I'd agree with that. There, there is some kind of a, there's something that the piece sets up, which is this, this kind of driving, interlocking thing with these very bouncy, uh, tricky rhythms and lines. Um, uh, yeah, and then you're right. He sort of, he, he, he takes it to some, to some other place. Um, and um, I think in the end, what, what I'm left with is he just wants you to kind of enjoy, you know, these enjoy these patterns, you know, enjoy these, these kind of interlocking lines. Um, uh, you know, you, you'll have, like, for instance, it starts out with the guitar and the piano interlocking, and then you have the, the bass clarinet and bass sort of swelling in to create these, these notes. And I think, um, rather than sort of say, oh, you know, this is, this is generating, you know, some sort of excitement. I think he really just wants you to kind of relish, you know, this texture and then the, the, the melodies that, that pop up within that. I think it's, in, in the end, for me, it being, you know, it ends up being a kind of an in-the-moment uh, sort of piece. Exactly. I mean, uh, to follow up on that, Mark, that's the way I listen to it, you know, since I am not, obviously I'm not performing in it, but for me, it's maybe the one piece on the album where I'm completely focused just on the moment-to-moment changes not to say that the piece doesn't have structure or you know anything else that you can take away from it but just like you were saying for me um it's i don't know maybe it to me it sounds like this sort of he's just he's just working in a in a mode rather than um like blocks or chunks it just to me it just it just feels like a wonderful moment to moment kind of piece yeah 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 and um he it seems like he kind of he does the same thing, um, like like you mentioned, Mark. You know, it starts with this guitar and piano interlocked, and um, this sort of sets up a slowly building texture. You know, from the different mm. um, instruments coming in, and then once he reaches that peak of you know intensity, it kind of breaks down into this um, sort of soft cascading, sort of major modish mm. figures. Um, and then sort of starts over again with the electric guitar and bass clarinet. Then it sort of builds again. Right. And then it again breaks down to this cascading sort of, uh, figures. Um, but yeah, let's check out this first excerpt, uh, from David Crowell waiting in the rain for snow. Thank you. 
Okay, so that was the first excerpt. And then the second excerpt I wanted to play because um, it is a similar, uh, similar to what we just heard, except um, he's building this thing up differently just through kind of the instrumentation, really. So first we heard um, guitar and piano start the thing off, and now we're going to hear guitar and bass clarinet start things off. Um, yeah, so anything else you guys want to add about this before I play the second excerpt? No, go for it. Okay, so here's the second excerpt from David Crowell's Waiting in the Rain for Snow. So let's get down to Patrick's piece. Um, the last piece on the CD, Awake. And um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed this piece a lot. Um, you know, I've never met uh, Judd or Mark in person, but Patrick and I have a little bit of a um, personal history going back to um, University of Texas in the late 90s. You know, in fact, Patrick, I was, I was um, remembering the last time I actually saw you in person, we witnessed a uh, some college girl um, throwing a really large drink into the face of a drunk redneck in a, at a steak and shake. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, that um, sounds very real. Good old days, huh? Yeah, yeah good old days. Yeah. You know, you see that thing in movies and you, and you don't think anything of it. When you see it in person, man, you're like, your jaw hits right. the floor. I, anyway. I have to say, just, just to be clear, that was not in Austin. <laughs> no, that was in Bloomington, right. Indiana. That was yeah. in Bloomington, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, anyway, so, uh, yeah, yeah, just, um, yeah, talk about your piece a little bit, Awake. Sure. Well, you know, you might um, remember that when I when I was at the University of Texas at Austin, um, I played in a gamelan ensemble. Um, I think basically the whole time I was there, and I absolutely fell in love with it, um, with the sounds, and really just with the concepts. You know, with the processes that were going on, um, so much different than the rest of the music that I played or then classical music, you know, in classical music, typically we want to see, um, or in contemporary classical music, you, you'll see, you know, shifting textures or you'll see the function of each instrument changing a lot. Um, I was kind of fascinated by how in gamelan music, it's very stratified and every instrument has pretty much just the one 
function that it serves for the whole time. Um, and I mean that, I guess to an extent, you know, you could say, well, why would you want that? That sounds more, um, more dull or more static. But I was really just fascinated with it because that's what really a lot of different types of music do, you know, in rock music or just different types of folk music. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I, you know, I'm I was, so I was fascinated with Gamelon, which is obviously a, a huge influence on this piece. Um, but for me, this piece was a very, really one of the first times, the first major time um, that I used Gamelon as a very explicit, very obvious influence. Before that, I was very hesitant, actually. I used some of the um, the processes. I think a lot of composers are attracted to, like, just to the timbres or just to the sound of the gamelan. I was always into the processes, so I, you know, in a lot of pieces since then, I've, I've had these, these kind of layers, this kind of slowing down, and um, well, one thing gamelan will do a lot is the piece will slow down, but at the same time, the notes become smaller. Like, so if you're going all quarter notes, it slows down, but then suddenly it kind of picks up into eighth notes. So it's this really beautiful sense of like slowing down and speeding up at the same time. Um, so, you know, that, that, that's one thing that really, uh, that really fascinated me about it. But anyway, um, yeah, this is the first time I really tried to do that. I really even tried to make it kind of sound like the main melody, which the Balungan, um, which is this, this primary melody that keeps going. And I, I did keep it going through the whole piece, the one that I created. Um, so, yeah, for me, it, it was just sort of like being honest with my own um, influences and stuff like that. I, I should say, though, that I, I never tried to, um, you know, the tuning system is completely different with yeah. the gamelan. You know, there are notes that we don't, we just don't have here. The intervals are just different. I never, I never tried. I never played with alternate tunings or, or things like that. Um, I, I really wanted it to be something that could be understood by, I don't know, hopefully by both cultures, but you know, by by the culture of the people, the pe the people in the culture from the culture in which I live. You know, right, so I, I right. didn't try to change that. Uh, at the same time, the melody really does resemble, I think, as much as a, a, a something can in our, you know, equal temperament, 12-note system, uh, it resembles that, you know, that, that kind of music. So I just used the instruments in Now Ensemble to kind of recreate that. And then, um, as we were saying, towards the end, it kind of breaks out into a what was it, rock anthem kind of section. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, it was really easy, you know, um, because the, you know, this idea of just being cyclical is, you know, it's, it's common to many, many types of music. So it actually um, wasn't hard to, to make it sound kind of integrated, I guess. Right, right. Um, so this particular um excerpt starts with um i don't know this kind of moment of repose or or kind of pensive music um and then it starts to sort of very gradually build an in intensity and in texture uh with this sort of um distorted electric guitar in the background 
And uh, the thing that really caught my ear, man, were the two wind instruments. I mean, these wind instruments are playing these lines in a duet that are just um, really just agonizingly beautiful. I mean, just uh, full of emotion and uh, almost like two opera singers um, yeah. going at it. And um, at the same time, they also uh, perform these, what I wrote down in my notes, almost Brandenburg-like gestures. So you get this... <laughs> you know, kind of Baroque feel almost also from it, or at least I did. Um, mm. But it has this um, kind of very uh, rock anthemish, elegiac sort of feel, like you said. Um, yeah. So anything yeah. else you guys want to say about this before I play it? Yeah, I mean, I'll just say, you know, Patrick's, all of Patrick's pieces are just so airtight in terms of their construction and in terms of, uh, just the he's he sort of he's got this nice sense of of narrative flow, uh, which is really really um, easy in the best possible way to convey uh, as a performer. Um, and so, you know, Patrick's pieces in 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 some ways, you know, I think they come off live. Um, uh, just really, really, really well because they have this very clear sort of way um, of bringing you from one place to another, um, and I think it's it's something that um, it he he sort of hides his tracks well, uh, so it's it, you can't sort of point to any moment of the piece and say, oh, I see what he's doing here. He's he's bringing me here. He's bringing me there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, by the end of it, you really felt like you've been on some sort of a journey um, where you kind of lose yourself for a little while, um, and that's that's to me one of the the great pleasures of um, uh, of playing playing Patrick's pieces, and this this one is no exception. Yeah, thanks, Mark. I, actually, that reminded me just a little bit about the structure of the piece. Um, it kind of builds to this really frenetic, kind of hectic pace, you know, by the somewhere in the middle of the piece. And then we have that moment of repose, like you were saying, uh, Anthony. And then it, I feel like the end of it, like Mark was saying, you kind of lose yourself in the end, you know. Like I, I almost have this this image of kind of fall, slowly falling backward as, as that last section unfolds. And I think that's... That's what it's about. I mean, in my program notes, um, you know, in a way, I wasn't thinking this when I wrote the piece, but my interpretation later is kind of like, oh, the beginning has to do with, you know, all of the sort of like the hectic nature of life. But then, um, you know, by the end, it's, it seems to transcend that and it seems to be more more at ease, I guess, or more content. And it actually took me... I, I almost forgot. It took me a long time to write this piece. Because, I mean, I really had to have a lot of patience because I usually have things happen really quickly, um, you know, or have a lot of different things happen. But I, I just, I really wanted to take my time or have the piece unfold rather slowly. Um, and just, again, just have the patience to do that. So um, it was great. I mean, uh, I think, yeah, I think it was about this piece. Sarah said she likes the end because you can just bliss out and i love that phrase (laughs) i think that's really accurate so let's all bliss out on patrick burke's awake
Okay, awesome. So um, that's it, guys. Um, can you – I just want um, you guys to go through one at a time, Judd, Mark, and then Patrick, and just um, – you know, anything you uh, want to plug, pimp, um, talk <laughs> about, yeah, just just uh, anything that's coming up in the future. Um, Judd? Sure. Um, well, I mean, I guess I'll just say, you know, since I'm also the co-director of New Amsterdam Records, um, if, you, if you like the Now Ensemble vibe, then I encourage you to check out what – other things are happening on the label, um, including, you know, Missy Mazzoli has a, a group called Victoire, and it's all her music. Um, and we have another record, Now Ensemble Does, on the label. And um, I have a bunch of other, you know, pieces by different people. Um, but there's just a lot of great music being made. And, um, you know, I think it's a, it's a place that is going gonna to develop in really interesting directions in the years to come. Great. What's the um, website for New Amsterdam? Website is newamsterdamrecords.com. So, okay. yeah, thank you. Okay, great. Yeah, Mark. Sure. Well, I just want to say um, if you enjoy if you enjoyed what you heard today, uh, please do go and check out our album. Uh, you can listen to the whole thing streaming from New Amsterdam Records, www.newamsterdamrecords.com. Uh, you can keep up with the latest Now Ensemble news at nowensemble.com. Um, and uh, if, you've, uh, if you've enjoyed our music, please do go and uh, buy the CD and uh, then listen to the other CD and buy that one too. Thanks very much. <laughs> All right, cool. Patrick? Yeah, um, if you enjoyed my piece awake um i i'm really excited about the next piece that i'm working on for now ensemble because um i've written four pieces for just for now ensemble but this this one that i'm working on now is actually a collaboration uh with my wife emily pinkerton um she's also a composer more more of the um singer type um kind of very beautiful folk folk influenced music um, but we're working on a piece called Rounder Songs, where Emily will be singing and playing banjo um, with Now Ensemble. And it's just a series of songs that we're writing together uh, that are kind of loosely based on Appalachian um, traditional tunes. So um really excited about that. And uh, actually, we'll be playing the first of those at our upcoming, um, we have a benefit concert coming up. Uh, later this month so awesome and um, if people want to check out the now ensemble what is the uh, url for the now ensemble's website just now ensemble.com all right awesome and um i think all of you guys have your own um websites own composer websites so please go and check out those as well um and yeah i'll i'll definitely be um uh, keeping tabs and, and really waiting um, for what you guys do next. And uh, maybe, you know, the next time you release something, you can come back on the show and we can talk about that. Love to. Yeah. Absolutely. Awesome. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for coming on the show and uh, we will see you next time. All thank right. you. Thanks, Thanks so much. Yep. And that does it for all the cool parts. Number 27 if you would like to check out the show notes, check out our website at allthecoolparts.blogspot.com. 
if you'd like to send us an email and uh, possibly have it read on the show or ask any questions or give us any comments, we'd love to get your emails at allthecoolparts@gmail.com. at gmail.com. You can visit me on my website at anthonyjosephlandman.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash Anthony Landman. And thanks again to Judd, Patrick, and Mark of the Now Ensemble. Um, And we'll be uh, definitely looking forward to what they do in the future. And until next time, I'm going to leave you with uh, another excerpt from the album that you can... um, chill out too at the very end and uh until next week until next show later Hey, performers, performing ensembles, and composers. All the Cool Parts podcast wants your music for All the Cool Parts Idol. If you're an emerging artist with a good quality recording and you'd like All the Cool Parts podcast to share it with the world, please email sound files and other details to allthecoolparts at gmail.com. Help me share your music with the world. All the Cool Parts Podcast is brought to you by classical guitar luthier Tomas Barobia, maker of the cutting-edge triple-core composite top classical guitar. Powerful volume, world-class tone, and exceptional playability all in one guitar. For more information and free sound samples, visit his website at www.latticeguitar.com. Dancing Bears. <laughs> Yo, are you uh, coming on to this thing? Okay, we're just kind of standing around, like, not talking to each other. <laughs> <laughs> not talking to each other. <laughs> you you are fostering awkwardness. <laughs> Please join us. <laughs> Do not be an agent of awkwardness. Yeah. <laughs> He's getting coffee. Uh, Can I actually ask you? I, I have a question. Is, yeah. is the name of your podcast what is what is that a reference to? Because it, it's a very specific reference for me, and it, it's very obscure.
<laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, it's just uh, I just thought it was kind of funny, kind of tongue in cheek, because the podcast is really um, aimed at uh, sort of a general audience that's not so familiar with classical music. You know, the, the audience that, you know, kind of likes the cool parts, quote unquote. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, so I don't know. I just thought it was a funny tongue in cheek name. I don't know. What, what does it bring up for you? There's a um, there's a very specific reference which is not exactly the same, but it's uh, there's a, a in the my friend is like a semi professional mountain climber, and he showed me this this speech that a guy gave. Um, I think it was a eulogy for for a climber who had died, and um, it's just this amazing description of of his life. And one of the things he says is it's like. He said that he lived life like, uh, what's the movie? The running movie? Um, oh, Chariots of Fire. He said, okay, like Chariots of Fire, but just the good parts or something like that. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's this fantastic, like, long list of things from all over the cultural landscape, and that part always stuck out in my mind. And so when I said I saw this, I was like, is that perhaps an you know obtuse reference to this eulogy? But that seems really unlikely. <laughs> Wait, you thought Anthony was making a reference? <laughs> it seemed unlikely, but you know, uh, you never no know. Time. You never know. But that's uh, that sounds like the best eulogy ever. I'll try to find it. I'll try to find it because um, it's really worth seeing. Are you guys ready? Yes, I'm as ready that, as I'm ever going to. Okay, yeah, that was really delayed. That answer was really delayed. Did we lose Judd? Uh, Judd? 